Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Welcome everyone to Developing Strategies for Remote and Hybrid Work Models panel, where we will discuss the realities of a post-COVID workplace, where hybrid work and what that means are still evolving. My name is Sanali Tare, Vice President of Strategic Content with Cornet Global, and I'm the host and moderator for this webinar. With that, I'd like to introduce our panel today. First, we have Albert de Plazaola, Senior Principal Strategy with Unispace, Based in San Diego, Albert is a strategy consultant with extensive experience in people-centered design and change strategies for private and public institutions. By leveraging design thinking and a user-centric approach, he moves beyond the typical motivations to explore how meaningful change can occur to foster greater organizational responsiveness, adaptability, and innovation. Next is Wendy Heller. Wendy is a manager in Deloitte Consulting's real estate transformation practice. She has over 13 years of workplace experience in delivering value to organizations through real estate transformation and high-performance workplace design and innovation. She previously led workplace strategy for a Fortune 100 beverage company. Finally, we have Roberta Sidney. Roberta is a former CEO, currently serving as the lead director of Kiabi, the leading technology and lending solution for real estate investors. She also serves on the board of Tiedemann Advisors, a global wealth advisory firm that is currently going public via SPAC. In addition, she serves as a board chair of HEI Civil. Furthermore, Roberta brings digital and industry expertise to VC-backed real estate technology startups including Switzerland-based Lockerbie, which is one of our partners today. She was named a private company director to watch in 2020. Thank you to all three for being here today and to Deloitte, Lockerbie, and Unispace for their sponsorship and partnership and participation in this webinar. So with that, let's go to our first question of the day. And this is a broad one, so you know, jump in. What are your clients doing as they bring people back into the workplace? I know that's a question everybody is eager to hear more about. Well, I'd be happy to kick that one off. What I would say is it's a confused time in the world right now. Employers, by and large, want everybody back to the office. And I do mean back to the office, not back to work, because nobody stopped working. And employees, by and large, want hybrid or flexibility or remote work. And so I think everybody's still trying to figure it out. The surveys that I've seen are showing things like 57% of people would leave if their companies don't offer some amount of remote or hybrid work. And then the other thing I would say, and I'd love to hear what my other panelists are saying, seeing and doing, is that there's a tremendous rush now to understand what is actually needed in terms of the workspace. You know, do we need fewer cube farms? Do we need more huddle spaces, collaboration spaces, bigger spaces, smaller spaces? And how we actually do that is a trick and a half. If you're a facilities manager right now, uh, your job is no longer making sure the heat's on. You, you've got a much bigger job today. So I'll stop with that. Maybe I'll jump in, Roberta. I think there, there were two things I wanted to jump in based on, you know, what you just shared. I think the first is you know, when you said sort of by and large employers want everyone back to the office and, you know, generally people want a hybrid experience. I would agree that that is what I'm seeing in a lot of industries. I think the caveat or sort of nuance there that I would add is that when we say people want hybrid experiences, I think the exception to that or sort of the double click is that 
working in a largely virtual first environment has been, I think, hardest on, you know, sort of the two ends of the spectrum as far as, you know, generations and generations in the workplace and now generations it working, working generations as opposed to in a specific place has been a topic for years. But I think we've seen a really strong differentiation between people who are super comfortable with technology, have established networks and, you know, have the sort of how I do my job down pat. I think for people who are new in roles, people who are more junior and developing their networks and people who are looking to do things the way they've always done it. So, you know, I don't want to generalize by age, but I think as we think about those generations, I think it's been most challenging. And as a result, the people who are most interested in bringing people back and getting back are sort of on the baby boom and younger millennial Gen Z spectrum, right? And I, you know, again, every generalization has the nuance or the caveat, but that's what I'm seeing as far as sort of the human response and then, the, as you mentioned, the sort of how to change the workplace, I think is also, you know, I know, I think we're going to talk in a little bit about benchmarking and how that world has completely changed. But I think it's worth noting that in the past, the way those types of decisions were made were based on, you know, what's everyone else doing and how do we define, you know, what we need? And there's just very little data on how people are working and what other companies are doing now. So I think we'll get into that in more detail in a bit, but I, I just, I think that the lack of evidence for what works right now is really slowing people down as they think about what they need. So I'll pause there. Albert, I don't know if you have thoughts on. Yeah, Wendy, what I'll, I'll pull a little bit on, uh, on the generational thing. And on the, on the question of what, what our organization's doing, I think very progressive organizations are actually investing a lot of resources in change management. And it's not the traditional change management that we used to think about in terms of facilities. Like, you know, three years ago, I was hired by organizations because they didn't want to admit to their employees that they were getting rid of offices. Now, uh, what change management is, especially for the Gen Zers, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these folks have never been in an office, you know, and much less a hybrid office. So I'm, uh, we're, we're engaging in change management efforts to teach people who've never been in an office how to use the office, what the etiquettes are, what the protocols are, and get them assimilated to actually going into a physical workplace. The other piece I might add here, and it's not necessarily an answer to the question, but it's something that I think organizations are thinking about, but it's a little less obvious. And um, everyone's talking about hybrid working and segmenting your employees and well, you're remote and you're hybrid and you're a homer, you know, you're going to be in the office five days a week. And we're all trying to figure out, well, how do you determine what those segmentations are? And typically we're doing it by either what your role is, or perhaps people are choosing by their distance from the office. The reality is though, when you do the research on this, the biggest determining factor of whether or not you want to go into the office or not is whether you're an introvert or extrovert. And so what I'm seeing is organizations thinking about personality types and also overlapping that onto their employee segmentation. And, you know, if any of you on the call or on this uh, webinar have ever read or seen the quiet TED talk where pretty much Susan Cain has made a cottage industry saying that introverts hate open offices. Now her solution was basically, hey, we should go back to private offices. I don't think that's right. But what I think you're seeing is that introverts are considering their home working, that private office, where they don't have to be in this big forum where extroverts typically are heard because they're the loudest voice, but then they're not always the most creative voice. 
If I can jump in, Albert, maybe right where you're leaving off, I think the sort of underlying piece there as we think about, you know, so this is sort of what the individuals want and what individuals need. I think as we think about what companies are trying to do as a result to serve their employee populations, you know, I think there's a, a few sort of key areas that are really critical. So one is trust, right? So as we think about how people manage teams in the past, I think there was a bias toward, you know, management by walking around. And so I think people over the last several years have had to, leaders especially, have had to tweak their leadership style to managing by objective or, you know, creating different types of cadence and opportunity for connection. But what that's really led to is, you know, really trusting the people that work for you to do what they're being asked to do in the right type of place where they're most productive. And I think one of the challenges to go back to your comment about change management is that as we think about the trust that's been in some cases, you know, been given without any alternative opportunity, I think they're probably, and we're seeing as part of the great resignation, a lot of pushback for companies who are trying to to sort of reel that back in and sort of remove the sense of empowerment that many employees have had. And so the sort of idea that you're empowered to choose the right type of place that supports you, we're seeing where companies are continuing to extend that trust in empowering their people to make those choices. We're seeing less attrition than in companies where they're having a mandate or, you know, saying our flexibility means you're here X day and you're not here Y day, right? So just, I don't know, Roberta, if you've seen that. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually like what you're, where you're going. And, and I would just mention one other thing, because I do think that you're right. The, you know, Pandora's box has been opened and it's been pretty hard. I would say by and large, it's banks and real estate companies, of course, that are saying, you gotta be here. This is where the work gets done. Come back to the office. It's safe, water's warm. However, there is still some schizophrenia, even with the companies that are extending the trust and saying, no, no, work where you want, work where you need to, you're productive. Everybody's been super productive. And I know we'll talk about a little bit later that maybe too productive and that there's a, a mental health and, and burnout challenge to the, you know, we're no longer uh, working from home, we're living at work. But the other side, which is I think the darker side here, and again, millennials, I think are gonna be the majority worker in 2025, not very long not very long. However, the people who are in charge today, the people who are governing promotions and visibility and acknowledgement and raises and bonuses, those people are still saying, guess what? FaceTime matters. And they're saying it, maybe it's from bias, maybe it's from you know what they know, what they've done, but it's not yet. And this comes back to perhaps some of what the change management piece is. It's not yet all the way through the sausage factory as to how you can have somebody go from individual contributor, brand new to the company, become a team lead or supervisor and advance their career when they don't see people regularly in the, you know, what I'll call the, the old fortress, the, the office where there's walls and doors and, and ceilings and floors. So I think there's still a lot of disconnect here, even though the trust has been extended. And, and I agree with you, people who continue to be flexible 
are going to win, but that doesn't mean that it isn't without a lot of spite going on. Yeah, I don't know if anyone else is a loyal Freakonomics listener, but I was recently listening to a podcast, I think it came out in the last few weeks, about why are there so many bad bosses? And one of the things that they highlighted was that people who had to make the transition during the pandemic from individual contributor to leader had less opportunity, whether it's, you know, less opportunity to watch others be successful as leaders, whether it's less opportunities for informal mentorship and training, or even less opportunity to test the waters to see if shifting from an individual contributor to a people leader was really for them, right? And so that's, I think, exacerbating some of the challenges around attrition. And, and also, you know, I know, again, we, we sort of have teased that we're going to get to the sort of work-life balance or the lack of balance, but has triggered some of the just sort of mental exhaustion that's coming from having to be in meetings back to back all day long. You know, I think early in the pandemic, I would have been the first person to tell you that I was delighted that I wasn't spending 45 minutes a day in the car commuting, whether it was to my own office, to a client's space. You know, I wasn't getting on a plane every Monday morning at 6 a.m., but now I'm largely happy with my flexible environment, but I do miss those in-between times. I do miss the opportunity between meetings to take a breath, to have a casual conversation, you know, to reset between our constant back-to-back-to-back lifestyle that's become really pervasive. You know, maybe before we move on to the next question, Sonali, let me also talk a little bit about that generational piece. We did a consortium even before COVID hit. It was about two and a half years ago in the Bay Area. We did a consortium with uh, tech companies and with fintech companies. And, you know, of course, I got asked, you know, what is the office of the future, Albert, which is a question I absolutely hate. But what we did is we kind of twisted it around and said, who's going to occupy the workplace of the future. And once we kind of did some research on that, it turns out by about 2025, exactly, Roberta, half of the demographic of tech organizations are going to be Gen Y and Gen Z. And if you kind of explore a little bit more about how those two generations work, we realize that they're on their computer, either online or doing something else on their computer or on their handheld for eight to 10 hours a day. And that's where we started to see the seismic shift on how people were working, that we no longer necessarily, and I know we'll get to this, but we no longer perhaps should organize offices by work modes, but really about how digital natives are working. Thanks, Albert. And I know we've teased quite a few topics that we're going to talk about. And here's the next one, which is benchmarking. You know, it's such an important topic that everyone's interested in. So with the benchmarks we need today being very different from what were needed in the past, and the fact that we only really have about two years of data of our new reality, how does corporate real estate and the businesses it serves move forward, considering there's a lot unknown, what's on the horizon? What do they need to be looking out for? Well, maybe I'll jump in and say, Sonali, I really appreciate the question. I'm not sure that I would agree that we have two years worth of data. I think we probably have six months worth of data that's spread out across two years. As we think about how people are working, their occupancy patterns, their trends, et cetera, I think, you know, the sort of start-stop nature of the return to office efforts due to various waves, et cetera, that we've all experienced, I think we've seen occupancy utilization sort of go up and down. I think as far as industries, we've also seen some industries never left the office. Some types of work never left the manufacturing floor. And so as we think about sort of what the world is going to look like and how we're going to plan for it and how the benchmarks and data supports it, I think we have to get like pretty granular 
when we think about, well, what is the work? And I think the other sort of big picture item is that prior to the pandemic, I've seen with, you know, executive leadership, a misnomer that offices were fully occupied. I think the idea that if utilization in top 10 U.S. cities is right now trending around 30, 35%, that doesn't mean we're down from 100%. It means that we're down from, on average, 50 to 65%, 65% being the absolute max with an in-person culture. It's a really different question. And I think, you know, people are just starting to wrestle with, well, what does good look like now? Right. Then how do we, you know, build the business case? To give you some stats to bolster what Wendy has said. So Lockatee, the the company on whose board I sit, does a lot of this measurement for their customers and tries to figure out where are the people and which ones are coming in and when are they coming in, what day, what hour. I think it's by five minute increments. So it's a lot of data. And I can tell you it varies a lot. And you're right. The full occupancy pre-pandemic 65% 65% you know, across the world, people were on vacation, they were at business meetings, conferences, sick. 100% was never the norm, even though everyone thinks we build one space for one person and they sit there all day long. It doesn't happen. The US right now on average, this is sort of first quarter numbers. So this is January and February, 7%, which is interesting to me. UK, 9%, Germany, 13%, Switzerland, 8%. The interesting outlier here, who's coming back? China. back in the office today. And the other interesting stat, which again, maybe many people on this call would know, is that traditionally offices have been built 70-30, meaning 70% individual space, whether it's cubicle or single office, 30% collaboration space. I don't think we know what the right split is going to be, what the right asset allocation is going to be, But I do think that my crystal ball says you're going to shift more towards the collaboration and the huddle space and less towards the individual office. Again, it will be site specific. It will be company specific. It will be industry specific. There's no one size fits all. But for sure, there's a lot more data that we really need. And I think one thing that real estate by and large, wherever those people sit, whatever industry they're on, they are hungry for analysis and not anecdotes to try to figure this out. So I agree with you completely, Wendy. We don't know enough yet and we're trying to get there. And and it's important to understand it fully because we can't just say, oh, today we need six small spaces for people and tomorrow we need one large space for 20 people. Build me that. I mean, that's a very expensive proposition to be. I was just going to say first cost prohibitive. And when you're, you know, poised to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a new building, a refresh, ANIC data just doesn't cut it in a business case. So I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach on that. And and I do think benchmarking is important to Sonali, but I also, one of my mentors once told me that benchmarking is your quickest pathway to mediocrity. And so while I think that benchmarking is important, I think also now more so than ever, because we don't have that reliable kind of benchmarking data, is that organizations have to take mitigated and or responsible risks to the workplace. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean dumping a bunch of money in a club room or clubhouse concept, but I do think there are ways that you can start thinking about a workplace strategy based on some of the work practices or some of the experiences that have taken a performance hit during the pandemic. So if you take a look at the research, um, collaboration, camaraderie, connection, teams coming together for the first time, community, that's taken a hit, right? So I think there's, a, there's probably a space in the new COVID workplace for that community area. The other place that's taken a bit of a performance hit is innovation. I, I want to make sure that I don't conflate innovation with productivity. I work a lot with tech companies and productivity has maintained or has even spiked a little bit, right? 
But what we have heard though, and what the research has indicated, speed to market around innovation has suffered a little bit because that face-to-face -face interaction between engineers and you know their scrum teams and whatnot isn't as effective online. And then I don't think we're gonna go back to a cube farm, but getting back to my comment about introverts, I still think that there might be an area for what we call like maybe a problem solving area in the new sort of COVID workplace. And what I mean by that is someone, you know, everyone just assumes that, hey, you're going to do your focus work from home. But I don't know how many people have been able to single task for two hours at home without answering the door for the Amazon guy or fixing lunch for the kids or whatnot. I still think that there might be a space for um, allocation of space for that problem solving area where you can get into that flow state. Now, to your point, Roberta, it depends on what, what your organization does to determine the allocation of each one of those three spaces. What we're saying, for example, professional services value community space because they want their consultants to come back into the office on Fridays, for example. However, when you're talking about a product company or somebody who sells products, we're saying that they need a bit more innovation space. So it varies how we allocate those three areas, problem solving, innovation, and community really depends, the bias depends on what market sector they're in. Well, I think that's right. And I think I think the other thing I would point out too, Albert, is that it's not just today I'm going to be heads down. It might be in the morning I'm going to be heads down. I'm working on a spreadsheet. I'm working on a report that I'm writing. And so I want to close myself off in a little in a little cocoon. But this afternoon I really need to do, you know, a meeting with the right. design team. And no, so totally. And so I think that's the other piece is it's not, you know, most people don't do, you know, for eight, 10, 12 hours a day, the same thing the whole day. Right. And I think that leads to sort of the, the transition spaces and time, right? So I think, you know, I would love to think living in Atlanta, I'd love to think that the days of everyone commuting at the same time have ended. We haven't yet seen that in our traffic patterns, but I think, you know, going back to that idea of choice and empowerment, right? I agree. We will still need lots of different types of spaces in the workplace. The proportion will change, but if I have the opportunity to, you know, schedule my day so that my, you know, I have an hour in the morning where I'm doing some heads down work. I go to the office for my team stand up or my, you know, collaboration brainstorming session. And then I have two hours between that session and a meeting in the afternoon, right? I'm not going to drive back home to do my heads down work and come back. I will still need that time in the office to switch on, switch off work modes. But I think the proportion and, and you know, if I finish up my collaborative day at 1 p.m., the idea that, you know, leaders will expect their people to sit in the office until 5 p.m. on the dot is over, right? Like the idea that you can go home or go to wherever you're most productive. I think we've proved that that works. The whole idea that in the past you're not productive if you're not here has largely been disproved. And just get back to your, your one point also is, is I think we have to extend our thinking around instead of perhaps just taking data from the workplace, think, think about how do we extract or how do we capture data about the work experience, right? Because right now the workplace might be 50 to 25% of the entire work experience for your employees. You know, one of the questions my, uh, my clients ask me all the time is how do you measure the performance of a post-COVID work experience when people are working from home, people are working from co-working spaces, they're working from Starbucks. And actually the office might be just one of many places where they're working. So, and I hate to admit this, but you know, I'm, I'm 
I'm one of those people who I wake up in the morning and one of the first things I do is check my phone and probably that's the last thing I do before I go to bed. And so there's a little bit of a wellness component in there, but I think organizations probably should start thinking about the work experience as opposed to just thinking about, well, how does the workplace enable productivity? In one of my companies, uh, Kiavi, we do a quarterly pulse survey of the employees. It is a valuable exercise to get information on everything about the employee experience, including the work experience. And that company decided in the pandemic to go from remote friendly to remote first. It's truly on the bleeding edge, if you will, of, of some of all of what we're talking about today. And what I like about what we're doing there is not only are we doing it regularly so we can see up, down, sideways, but we're also segmenting and slicing and dicing by demographic, by gender, by tenure in the company. We're asking things about, you know, their reaction to meetings. You know, are there too many meetings, enough meetings, are, you know, everything you can possibly think of. And the point is, if we think of now our customer is the employee, just as we went about obsessing and delighting our customers out there, we have to obsess and delight our customers inside that internal employee, because there are just way too many options for smart, talented people to vote with their feet. And so if we don't really know what their experience is, and we don't know what they're looking for, we're going to miss the boat. And I, I do think that what I'm seeing too, in some of the services data, again, it's it's not all perfect because these are definitely, I, I love your word, Wendy, anecdata, but to me, remote is now becoming like a 401k in terms of being table stakes. And for companies that say, nope, it's verboten, it doesn't happen here, this is where work gets done, I think they're going to lose out in the talent world long-term. Maybe short-term they won't, but long-term they will. Thanks, Roberta. You know, that really segues real well into our next question, which really goes to the heart of this conversation that you're having, which is, what does workplace experience mean today? It's so different. You know, I mean, it always has been different depending on who you ask, but the employee expectations of today are based on their own experiences over the past couple of years. And flexibility was, was huge over the past couple of years. Everybody was, you know, doing whatever made sense for their lives while they worked remotely. So how does CRE navigate that? And how does the business, you know, start to define workplace experience for their own employees? So maybe I'll jump in because I was sort of thinking through a topic that's really focused here as, as Albert, you and Roberto were just speaking. I think, you know, one of the things that we see as we think about not just the workplace, but the work experience is the sort of physical and digital components and how they come together. You know, so if we think about work at, you know, the workplace as a metaverse, lowercase m, all of those places and experiences and layers are going to be critical. And so developing, creating the right type of physical and digital experience so that the person who is working remotely this week or this day, whether it's because they've chosen to do so or because they have a family member who requires that they, you know, be there, a parent, a child, for whatever reason, right? You want that experience to be as good for people who are remote as the people who are in the room. Hopefully the days where, you know, people who are remote can't hear, can't see, are literally like muted, you know, hopefully those days are behind us. But I think we have a lot of work to do sort of on the digital workplace on defining like, what does that experience look like and how do we measure it, right? Not, you know, there's sort of the sentiment piece, Roberta, which, you know, I think you're getting to 
around the pulse surveys, but there's also just like the technology infrastructure and sort of the investments that companies are going to need to make. You know, everybody made sort of the table stakes investments two years ago, but how do we maintain that and, and further develop those experiences on the digital side, I think is still a developing question. Yeah. And I'd go back to uh, what Albert was talking about before a little bit around change management, because I think there's an entire piece here, which I call social engineering. You know, if we're going to have a point-to-point -point meeting where there's six people here, six people there, or if we're going to have six people in the room and four people on screen, how do we make sure that everybody is really included? And it isn't the last two minutes of a 30-minute meeting where we say, oh yeah, and you who are kind of like on the sideline in the, in the, in the Zoom seats, if you will, how do we get those voices in? So I think that requires a certain level of training, a certain level of change management at the meeting conduction level, which is different. The other thing I would say, and I do think many companies are addressing this, and I think you touched on it briefly, Wendy, is how do we make it equitable? I mean, not everybody has everything they need to work as productively from home or wherever it is elsewhere that they're working besides the office. And what are companies doing about that? Is it giving them a laptop? Is it helping them upgrade their internet? Is it giving them ergonomic stand-up desks so that they don't hurt themselves? You know, what is it that everyone needs so that they can all be productive from where they are? And then the last piece I would say, which I know if we have any CISOs, you know, on the call today, they'll be thinking about is the number of attack surfaces that have multiplied for the hackers and the malware and the, the evildoers, if you will. And how do we do it so that we create both privacy and security without making it triple, quadruple password impossible, where I have to write everything down in order to access what I need to from home or make it so hard to get into you know, Fort Knox for the information that it's like, oh crap, I guess I'll drive the, the 45 minutes and go to the office because I just can't work effectively um, anywhere else. So I think those are the, some of the things that people need to think about and they're not, they're not all housed in one area, so I think that's another piece, you know, does this belong to HR? Does it belong to real estate? Does it belong to technology? I think it belongs everywhere. And it starts at the top where, you know, again, the senior leadership and the board really have to say, this is important. Our workforce is important. What are we doing to make sure they have what they need and that it isn't a differentiated experience. Again, going back to the point we were making before. I'll maybe pick up on something, uh, Wendy, you said about the virtual. And this is a little, probably I would argue this is a bit polemical, but I think we're absolutely as, as workplace and or work experience practitioners, ignoring probably the advancement of what's going to be going on in, in the virtual in the next six to eight years. I actually think that it's going to be, you know, whenever I do a workplace strategy initiative, we take a look at how the people work, and then we bring what we call the kit of parts. You know, how do these space types come together to enable certain work practices? I think what we're ignoring is that that virtual piece, virtual reality, will be one of those kit of parts eventually. And what I'm really interested in, I don't know the answer to this, but let's assume that virtual collaboration becomes 80% as effective as to face-to-face -face collaboration. Then what is the workplace used for? You know, what are we thinking about? The other piece that I was going to talk about was change management even around that virtual piece, right? How do we use it? How is it most effective? And there is precedence for this. If you, if you take a look, if you Google Second Life and IBM, IBM used Second Life uh, a ways back to do exactly that. The problem was the technology just wasn't there. 
But I think what you will see, again, if, if we see exponential um, investment in virtual reality, which I think what we're seeing, it's already there in the gaming field. I think that uh, that you might slowly see adoption in professional work as well. I, I also, not to harp on the generational topic, but I'll go back to it for a second because Albert, something you just said sort of sparked for me. So I have teenage children. My oldest is, you know, freshman in college. He, you know, developed real relationships with yeah. people he had never met using a Discord server, found his roommate, created a community for himself even before he arrived at school. And so I think, you know, the sort of idea that you must be in person to create culture is something that generationally is going to shift, right? Like, I, you know, I'll share, I'm Gen X. I, I still like the hybrid. I still like opportunities to be in person and opportunities to, you know, not be remote. But I think for some, the work itself can easily be done in a remote using technology as, as the medium, the soft piece, the soft side, the networking, the mentoring, the learning, like the sort of implicit curriculum of work, if you will, is much harder than the explicit. And so I think as we think about that balance and we think about generations, I think that will also be pretty important because the change management that a Gen Z or new to the workplace is going to need around how to network, how to engage your colleagues, how to you know, behave, how to dress when you haven't had to think about that ever before will be very different from the change management that somebody who's worked in a workplace for 20 or 30 years has had to sort of muddle through for the last two and is like, you know, eyeing the return to office with like, just like relief as the only sentiment that person will need very different change management. So just thinking through that is, I don't, I don't know, Roberta or Albert, if that resonates. I think that's right. I think the, um, again, I think there's no one size fits all. And in most companies, you have some of every kind of person, whether it's the introvert, extrovert, or the younger person and the uh, more established person. And so I do think all of it needs to be considered, you know, things like what's our response time on, on email? You know, can I write on the weekend? Is that okay if I'm the manager or am I imposing on, on somebody's quote unquote free time? You know, all of that, which would have been perhaps caught or taught around the water cooler, the virtual water cooler that, that doesn't exist right now for most places, that, that's part of what needs to happen. And new norms, again, I think it's, it's new norms need to be established and affirmed so that everybody's clear and, and, and there isn't the, the misunderstanding that, that can happen. The other thing that's interesting, I was on a call yesterday about somebody in the shoe industry, and they were talking about how they're using some of these virtual tools to cut time when you think about supply chain and speed to market. So I think it's happening in just about every industry you can think of that people are thinking about how can we use technology whatever the technology is. And so I, I, think, I think you're right. I think it's going to happen everywhere. And it's a question of how it's an enablement tool for us and how it helps us bridge these divides and reestablish a new normal. Because it's not we're not going back to what we were. I pretty safely can, can say that we're going forward in a different way. So now maybe the one last thing I'll add, because I get this question a lot from clients and it, and it goes to experiences and how we develop or create those employee experiences. The question I ask is, how do we think about amenities now in, in the workplace? And I think what, you, what I'm saying at least is that um, amenities are going to be less around gyms, 
around locker rooms that, by the way, were never well utilized anyway. You know, when you ask people, how often do you use the gym? They'll say, oh, I don't really want to work out and take a shower with my coworkers. So while it sometimes lures people into the, or, or it, the perception it lures people into the office, typically wellness programs aren't necessarily well adopted and gyms in particular are very poorly utilized. So if we're thinking about like what we call the destination workplace, what I'm seeing is a little more progressive companies are creating experiences for people to come into the office or maybe not experiences, but events. So instead of, you know, creating cafes or game rooms or whatnot, it's about, hey, we're going to have, um, you know, we're going to get the sales team in here and we're going to have a, a somebody's coming in here to do a, you know, a golf lesson or make cocktails or um, even something as simple as providing the, you know, a blue apron box. So that when people do come into the office, they can take that away um, and they have dinner for the evening. So it's more about conveniences, maybe events that will bring people into the office and not so much about, you know, serving, you know, the, the, the large tech companies serving, you know, oysters and bone marrow at, at lunchtime. I was just going to say free food is always popular, just to be clear. It is. Especially if you didn't provide it before. It is, but I, I don't know if it's, if that's enough to draw It's not in. a draw, right. but it's a, it's a, it's well, popular. Like when you think about an amenity, it's not why you come, but it's like a, a nice little perk if you're there. Well, and Wendy, it's always like, you know, when, when I did change management work and I told everybody how many, you know, all these new amenities, or excuse me, these collaborative spaces they're going to get. The one question I get in return is, well, what kind of coffee are we going to have? Totally. Oh, yes. Coffee and vegan food. What is the specialty menu that's available? Well, I think what you're pointing to is, is something that I've kind of labeled and I, I haven't seen a lot written about it yet, but it's going to be the on-site rather than the offsite. So I do think we're going to have to create reasons for gathering and whether it's the hybrid company or the yeah. virtual company that meets or the hybrid company that gets together, you know, from time to time, there's going to need to be something that, that does happen. And whether it's once a year, once a month, once a week, I think everybody will, will, will pick their percentage, if you will, and come up with something. And, and again, what, what I've seen is the smart companies are letting teams dictate it. So if it's, okay, 25% of the time, we're going to be together. Does that mean one day a week? Does that mean one week a month? And it might be different depending on who's answering that question. I think you're absolutely right, Roberta. You know, I think one of the most interesting things that I've heard today, honestly, is the change management piece. And it, you know, especially when it comes to newer, younger generations and, you know, like Wendy, I'm Gen X. And for me, I love the, you know, the hybrid style because I like being in the office. I like talking to people. I like, you know, I like the social aspect, but then I also like not having to drive in every day and, you know, the heads down time. But what's interesting is that, you know, and this is our, our next question, which we have just a few minutes to address, which is that working from home has its own stressors. And likewise, coming back into the office has a different set of considerations. So how are organizations aiding remote workers to retain balance in their lives? And this, um, this is something that goes back to what you said, Roberta. And how are organizations aiding those who are coming back into the office, especially around equity, mental health, and other well-being and DEI considerations? I know that's a huge question to uh, throw out there while we just have a few minutes left, but let's see, you know, uh, what we can do with that time. Well, I'll take a, a quick sec here. And uh, there's actually a, a Fortune Deloitte survey that I was reading, which talked about four-fifths of CEOs have increased work flexibility. 65%, 65% are focusing on well-being and mental health. Only 25% have focused on bonuses, one-time bonuses to sort of address some of these issues. 
So I think people are recognizing this is not a problem that can be solved with money, unless it's money on programs that, that make a difference. It's not just about handing people cash, um, but the isolation, the loneliness, um, the fact that this is uneven, and, and this has not just been a, a great resignation, it's been kind of a, a she session. You know, women by and large socially, especially here in North America, are responsible for the elders, they're responsible for the household, they're responsible for the children. And so it's often been the women who've left the workplace in this time. And for them to be able to come back now that we realize that, that school is daycare, uh, and when school closed, uh, what did you do with the kids? You weren't leaving your eight-year-old at home to say, okay, have fun on Zoom. That's that's a big issue. And how companies address these things, I've seen, I've seen companies like Slalom, they're they're providing money for childcare. I mean, there are just solutions that need to be found where it will be private industry, probably not the government, private industry addressing addressing these matters. And, and we're going to need a lot more mental health workers. So whole, whole new industry to, 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 come, uh, to come be born. But to me, to me, it's a big issue. It's a really big issue. I couldn't agree more, Roberta. I mean, as I said, I mentioned earlier, I'm a mom of three teenagers. I have counted myself lucky. I can't count how many times during the pandemic because I've never had the experience of having to help my first grader figure out Zoom or Teams and die. I mean, those parents are heroes and, you know, have had to keep up with work, keep up with their net, right? Like it's unbelievable. And to your point, largely women or in many cases, women, I think the other piece there is that setting boundaries is not a new topic. You know, back in the day, people still had to communicate this is, you know, these are my work norms, or these are the times I work, or this is going to be my response time. I think we mentioned this earlier, being really clear about what you need, which involves knowing what you need and communicating that to your team. No company is ever going to say, please work less, right? Like sort of at the organizational level, there aren't going to be CEOs who say, I wish my people worked less hours, or I wish my people were less productive. But as humans, we need to take responsibility. And this is actually one of the things that as a people leader, leader, I say to new team members all the time, the company will never tell you to work less. You need to be confident in what you need so that you can say out loud without embarrassment, I need to exercise three days a week and therefore I will, you know, be taking this time or I, you know, I pick up my kids at this, this time of the day, or I get on, you know, here's my, you know, golden hour that I need during the day, right? Like those are the things that no company and even no team will be able to define. But I think companies can give people the space and the opportunity to communicate that more explicitly, right? Like that's, I think, where companies have the opportunity and the responsibility to their people. And, and I might often ask, it's funny because before before COVID, we used to talk about wellness as, you know, well, you know, do you have plants in the lobby or something like that, right? Now, I think you're absolutely right, Wendy, is like, is like organizations, I, and I, I don't think anybody has the answer to this really about how you adjudicate wellness to your employees. Um, but I do think that um, organizations are providing or should be providing the freedom uh, for their employees to help curate what that wellness what wellness means for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it gets back to the mental well-being also, right? What are the tools? What are the resources that companies provide? Are there even are there frameworks or are there, you know, tools that that managers maybe they don't know or don't have a something that they've always used 
to talk about this with their teams, but it's a really critical topic, even to just give error to the junior people who are afraid to say, I really need six or seven hours of sleep a night, or I really am more productive when I work these hours, or I, you know, being on calls with Asia until midnight and then waking up for calls with the West Coast at six is, is infeasible, right? Like well, and, those types of limits are important. And, and what I might, I might even go farther on that and saying it's, 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 it, it has to be something that's in, that either is embedded or gets in, integrated into the culture. Because again, you know, the, the research, the research indicates that, you know, just because you give employees a free subscription to Headstart or, or some meditation app, you know, that's not really a sustainable solution. Adoption on that isn't necessarily sustained. So I think it's a more of a, it's more of a cultural application of what we think wellness is um, that companies might have to start thinking about. Not Head Start, Headspace. Sorry. Yeah, it's 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 necessary but not sufficient, and I I agree, and I do think it is upon you know I'll go back. You have to know what's going on. It becomes harder when you're not walking around the office and seeing everyone and either feeling the buzz or lack thereof. But it becomes even more important to to do that. Um, maybe Sonali, the the because the last part of the, I think your question was about DE and I and B, and I think we also underestimate the ability for design to encourage DE and I. There's all sorts of techniques and design thinking, whether it's nudge design or whether it's universal design, and even thinking about the intention of the workplace that can help support DE and I. Um, and I'll give you one quick story about this is I used to live in Ven- I used to live in Venice, California. And I was with a coworker and we went, we took a walk down to the Venice skate park. And if you took a look at the at, at who was at the Venice skate park, the demographic, it was all generations, genders, ethnicities, diversities. It was a very diverse group who was at the skate park. And when we started to think to ourselves, well, why is that? What attracts everybody here from such a diverse, you know, why is this why is this such a diverse group? And we started doing some research on learning and playing because we thought that what actually was bringing people there is, you know, the ability to play and the ability to learn. And so there's not a lot of concrete evidence on this, but uh, we're kind of playing around with the concept that if we provide a little bit more um, of a playful or the art of play element into the workplace, that that may cut across some of the diversity issues that we have because everybody likes to play and everybody likes to learn. They do it in different ways. Uh, but we're again, we're we're playing with those concepts to make to see if we if we can provide equitable experiences for for folks who come from different backgrounds, who have may have different neurodiversities, um, and who have may have different ethnicities. So that's just a concept that we're playing with right now. Thank you all. Um, we're pretty much at the end of our time that we had. Uh, we just have a few minutes left, and I just want to give a big. Thank you to Wendy, Albert, Roberta for being here, for sharing their, uh, their thoughts, their insights, their perspectives. I, I really love the, the way you all played off of each other and um, you know, the great converse, conversation that you shared. So a big thank you. And thank you to everyone who attended today. We appreciate uh, your, your input and you know, your questions as well as your comments that came via chat. And finally, a big thank you to our partners uh, Deloitte, Lockerty, and Unispace. Uh, we cannot do these events without you. So uh, thank you for your participation, your sponsorship, and your partnership. And hopefully we'll see everyone at another webinar in the future. Thank you. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.